Hi, this is Gary Meese with The Case Against. Coming to you, as always, from the banks of beautiful Rotten Bayou. Uh, and as always, we're looking at the uh, the case of, not always, occasionally I get into some other things, but we're, we're going to be continuing to look at the case of the West Memphis Three, uh, the West Memphis Three being Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miskelly Jr., who arrested in 1993 for the murders of three eight-year-olds, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore on May 5th, 1993. The bodies of the three boys were found uh, horribly beaten up. Two of the boys were mutilated. They were nude, they were bound, and they were dumped into a muddy ditch in a wooded area of West Memphis, Arkansas, known as Robin Hood Hills. Um, approximately a, a month later, June 3rd, 1993, Jesse Miskelly Jr. confessed to police Damien Eccles had already set himself up as a prime suspect uh, because he'd been sighted near the scene of the crime. He'd given some, some very uh, incriminating answers to a police questionnaire. He'd failed a polygraph. Uh, he had a known history of violence, uh, which had alerted police to the fact that he could be a danger. And uh, at that time, they also had a friend of his that uh, described a, con uh, a not a detailed confession, but a confession that uh, uh, to him that Eccles had been in. Eccles had told William Jones at that point. The police were aware of it that he was involved in the, the killing, uh, the killings of these three little boys. So he was already a prime suspect. The sighting, by the way, was by the members of the Hollingsworth family who knew Damien Eccles. They said they saw Damien and, uh, his pregnant girlfriend, Dominique Tier who they considered to be a relative. She's not related actually by blood or marriage to that family, but there were some tenuous family ties. But they considered her to be some sort of cousin. Um, the, the Hollingsworth family did. They all lived in this trailer park in uh, between Marion, Arkansas, and West Memphis, Arkansas, known as Lakeshore Estates. Uh, Jason Baldwin also lived there. Uh, Dominique Tier lived there. And uh, various members of the Tier family had married into the Hollingsworth family. It's just that technically, Dominique wasn't really related. Technically, she wasn't really a relative. Anyway, uh, they'd spotted, they said they'd seen Damien and Dominique. On the side of the road, muddy clothes, about 9.30, 9.20, 9.30, the evening of the murders. Uh, 
Dominique had an alibi, not the strongest alibi in the world, but an alibi uh, that she was at home asleep uh, with her mother uh, and sleeping in her mother's bed, as a matter of fact. At the time, uh, Damien had a number of shifting alibis and none of them really panned out. Uh, he never... he. Never really seemed to embrace the alibi that was attempted at trial, which was that he had gone over to visit some family friends around uh, 7 p.m. that evening, and they'd stayed to watch part of Beverly Hills 90210. Uh, as absurd as that all seems, uh, it's you know that was the that was his alibi. Uh, The fact is, is he's never he's he didn't mention that alibi with police to police, and then he he said he was on the phone talking to girls. None of the girls have ever have ever, and they've given repeated statements over many years. None of the girls that he describes talking to have ever said they were talking to to him that evening in the time frame that offered him an alibi in the killings. Um, so his one, his big alibi claim is totally fallacious. Uh, he's never embraced the Sanders story, the Sanders visit to the Sanders family, but it was a, a, a offered at trial in a detailed sort of way, unlike the, the phone call alibi which was mentioned by his, his family members that he was on the phone, but they ne never really tried to prove it beyond that. And that was disproved by things that the alibi witnesses said. And it honestly, it hasn't gotten better over the years with the statements they've given later. Uh, and we've gone over that already. We can, but we can do it again. Uh, the... I'm going to get into, and Jason Baldwin just simply has never had a credible alibi. And in any claim he makes that he has an alibi is just based on his wishful thinking. He hasn't, he hasn't offered, it, with the help of millions of dollars at his disposal and over a half century to come up with a credible alibi, he hasn't been able to come up with one yet. So I, I wouldn't hold my breath on him coming up with, a, with one anytime soon. Um, Jesse Miskelly had a two-part alibi. One that was that he was on the scene of uh, several police calls to uh, the trailer park where he was living. Yeah, I forgot to turn that off. Uh, trailer park where he was living in 1993, uh, uh, on, on, on the evening of May 5th, 1993. I'm easy, I get easily distracted sometimes. The um, uh, the police came, and that's all verified. Uh, there were three police calls around 6.30 to 7, not as late as 7, but they were around between around 6.30 to about 7 that evening, uh, answering a call concerning a, a woman slapping a child. Um None of the police, none of the police officers, the law officers, the sheriff's deputy, and two members of the Marion Police Department answered 
answered the various calls. None of them identified Miss Kelly as being at the scene. It was a small scale, it was a very minor small scale police call. It's not like they interviewed and investigated for hours, a huge number of people or anything, but they did come and talk to the parties there. They don't, they all knew both Miss Kelly Jr. and Jesse Jr. and Jesse Sr. Uh, the officers did, and none of them recall Jesse Jr., little Jesse, the convicted killer, on the scene despite his claims. So that alibi basically doesn't exist. Um, and there were many problems with his other alibi witnesses at the scene, as we have gone over for multiple episodes now. The other alibi concerned uh, a wrestling trip to Dias, Arkansas. Uh, that's, that supposedly occurred that evening. Uh, the primary evidence for this, other than the testimony, and we're going to be hearing the testimony of some of these witnesses today, um, we're not going to hear the actual testimony because I, I don't have the recordings of that, but we'll hear, uh, we'll go over those testimonies. But the the best witness they had for that was uh, a wrestler, an aspiring professional wrestler named Fred Ravel, who just simply was pretty articulate and made a very good case. And originally he'd gone to the police very soon after the arrest and said, you know, he was with me that evening. Uh, the problem was that Ravel had tied this to um, the resigning of a receipt for the uh, to the owner Char to Charleston, the owner of the this old theater in Dias, for the use of the of the old theater and the uh, the the boxing ring. Uh, he was they were paying some money paying. Stone some money to use this, and he tied that to the May 5th visit. And they pull out the receipts, and it turns out it was April 27th, a week earlier. So, so much for the wrestling trip alibi. And it doesn't help that all the other witnesses at some point contradict some other witness. Sometimes they contradict themselves, sometimes they simply don't offer very much in the way of an alibi to begin with. And we are going to go over today, hopefully I'll wrap this up, the weakest the weakest alibi witnesses. But in the interest of completeness, I mean, you could almost wrap it up with uh, Fred Ravel. But in the interest of completeness, which is a lot of what my coverage of the case is about, we're going to go over these other witnesses for Jesse Miskelly and, and show just how little help they had to offer in terms of the alibi. They'd already heard, uh, um, concerning the wrestling trip, they'd prosecute the Prosecutors, jury, judge, everybody had already heard from uh, Fred Ravel and uh, and a friend of Miss Gellis named Roger Jones. So the next up was a guy named 
Keith Johnson, who was involved in the wrestling trip, and he was had a brother who was also involved uh, named Kevin. Now, Keith Johnson lived in Mark Tree, and he had a vivid memory of going along with the wrestlers to Dias on one occasion, but he readily admitted he had no idea of the exact date, nor did he have any independent memory of May 5th. This makes him not much of an alibi witness. Johnson described the wrestling trip. Well, that afternoon, well, one afternoon, my brother called me and asked me if I wanted to go to wrestling school. I said, yeah, I'll go. I said, what time do you want me to meet? He said, meet, meet him at Lake David, that old Exxon, about 6 o'clock. So I said, okay. So about that time, I got ready to go, and uh, I went there and got there right at 6 o'clock. I had to wait because nobody showed up, and I was waiting. Now, Lake David was at the Turo exit off Interstate 55. It's about 18 miles north of Highland Park. And it takes about 18 minutes to get there. You just go up I-55 and you're there. Uh, the Turo is a small, <laughs> truly run-down community. Uh, north of Marion, Arkansas, uh, all in Crittenden County. Uh, defense attorney Dan Stidham interrupted Johnson asked him, let me stop you for just a second. Are you telling the court you don't remember exactly what the date was? Johnson answered, no, sir, no, sir, don't know the date. As an alibi witness, Johnson was no help, but Stidham seemingly surprised about what his witness would say told him okay continue please johnson and uh well i got to lake david and i was sitting there and waited till about six o'clock and then nobody showed up so i just stayed around for a while it was getting dark by the time by the time everybody showed up now if he says it's getting dark Sunset was 7.49, and it would have been getting dark, seriously dark, within the next 30 minutes or so. So it would have been fairly dark by 8.15, 8.20. So... They could have easily, if, if it was getting dark when everybody showed up, it could have, they could have very, have very easily have been 8.15, 8 8.20. It certainly was probably no earlier than 8.10, which means, and they could have left, um, Marion, Arkansas, they could have left Highland Park at 20 minutes earlier. Assuming they kept to the speed limit, you can get there a little faster if you don't adhere to the speed limit. Actually, you can get there fast. I don't know where I got that. If it's 18 miles and you're going 70 miles an hour, you'll get there faster than 
than uh, 18 minutes late. So it's it's really not a very long trip to Turrell, Arkansas. You could leave at 8 o'clock and get there by 8.15 if you just push it a little bit. Pretty close to it. So this doesn't argue that that Miskelly had to be back at the trailer park at assuming that the wrestling trip even happened but it, let's let's just assume that the wrestling a trip trip happened for the sake of sake of this argument Miskelly wouldn't have had to leave with his friends to go on this wrestling trip until very very close around eight o'clock in other words to show up at Lake David outside Turrell when it was just getting dark at 8.10, 8.15, 8.20, whenever. Instead of asking this Johnson. Okay, who showed up? Uh, Johnson answers. Uh, see, that's one thing I don't remember all the people's names that was there. The first time I met all of them besides uh, Johnny Hamilton. But he did remember that Muskelly was there, Johnson said. Well, they asked me if a few if a few of the guys could ride with me, and I said, we only have room for two because I had some, some big speakers in my back car and I couldn't fit nobody in the back seat. So Jesse and another guy, I see, I don't remember his name, got in the front seat with me, and then another guy, one of them parked their car, and they took we took off to Dias. We went straight to Dias, uh, went to this uh, right there, think it's maybe in town. Big built wrestling building, looked like an old theater or something. Stidham, uh, okay, Mr. Muskelly was with you? Johnson, yes sir, he rode right beside me. Now there's no doubt that Muskelly took some trips to Dias, Arkansas for these wrestling trips that's not a question it's not an issue so there is a question whether it was this particular night that's all that really matters and Johnson's no help with this but he does recall Muskelly some evening riding in the car with him uh, Johnson's description largely matched Fred Ravel's testimony that quote Bill Cox didn't trust his car to drive all the way to Dias so we parked his car and we exchanged vehicles and Roger Jones and Jesse got out of the car with Zella Adams and Johnny Hamilton and got in the car with Keith and me and Bill Cox got in the car with Dennis Carter, I believe, and Johnny Hamilton and Zella so there'd be room. They had speakers in the back seat. We were, me and Bill Cox was going to ride with Keith too, but he had speakers in the back seat so we couldn't all fit in there, we went straight to Dias. And uh, so there is some congruence of memory about all this, but we're not, it, it doesn't really do a whole lot of good if you can't pin down the dates, and Fred Ravel failed at that, and, and uh, Johnson's also failing at this. Uh, Johnson's memory did concur with Fred Ravel's memory of Bill Cox throwing Miskelly into the side of the ring that evening. Or some evening. Stidham asked Johnson, did anything happen that night uh, to Mr. Miskelly? And, you know, it's, 
And it's always interesting to hear Dan Stidham, uh, the world's largest complainer about leading questions, offering leading questions to people. And that's he just did this with Johnson. But anyway, Johnson said, yeah, um, after we wrestling around for a while, he was outside on the floor, and then someone got out and uh, tried to throw him back in. He hit his head on the ring, and then after that, you know, he set out from wrestling the rest of the night. Stidham, what time did y'all leave Dias that night? Johnson, I don't remember exactly what time it was, but I got to my house a little after 10 o'clock that night. Under cross-examination from John Fogelman, Johnson again admitted he didn't know when this trip occurred and added a crucial detail. Well, all I know is the night when my brother called me, he was supposed to show up, and he did not show up, and I asked him where he was. He didn't show up at all because he had to go to a rescue meeting or something that night. Now, police had talked to his brother, Kevin Johnson, on several occasions, Johnson, this Johnson, Kevin Johnson, was 24 years old. He lived at, right next door to the Miskellys. And he'd given a handwritten statement to Detective Bill Durham on June 10th. And he said in that, I signed this contract before the murders and don't know anything about the money. On May 5th of the night, the boys were known about missing. I was... On May 5th of the night, the boys were known about missing. I was at the search and rescue meeting that night. Uh, Kevin Johnson testified and said he remembered May 5th because, quote, I was at a search and rescue meeting. I was supposed to went to the wrestling and got called, and I didn't make it to the wrestling that night because I went to the meeting. Asked, did you talk to your brother that day? He replied, I believe it was that day. While the testimonies of the Johnson brothers offered no alibi to Miss Kelly, they didn't indicate a wrestling trip on May 5th. More than one witness mentioned Kevin Johnson not attending, Brother Keith being picked up at the Exxon station, and Miss Kelly hitting his head, and they all tied it into May 5th. Which raises the question, Did was there a wrestling trip on May 5th? Yeah, there actually might have been. Uh, just Ravel made a mistake of tying it into a documentation. It's, it's just simply not clear. We do know that they were regularly going on Wednesdays to wrestle in Dias. And there's no particular reason that that Wednesday would have been an exception. The problem for Miss Kelly is that even... As we just demonstrated, even if you do go on the wrestling trip, it doesn't really offer uh, an alibi for having participated in the murders because the wrestling trip seems to have occurred after a t- uh, late enough that it really doesn't offer a, a very good alibi. It doesn't cover the time the murders were probably actually occurring. It does tighten up the time frame somewhat between Miss Kelly arriving at Robin Hood Hills, participating in the murders and leaving, but according to his own statements, his multiple confessions, he got out of there 
pretty quickly. And he was pretty upset about what went on. And I'm not saying he didn't participate in the killings. He says so himself, and I have no reason to think he didn't. But I also have no reason, based on what he says, to believe that he hung around for very long after it was all, after the killing was done. And it, it could easily have all been over with in, what, half an hour as far as his participation. It puts it a little bit after seven. He walks home and he still has, he still has plenty of time. He runs part of the way home. So there's that, um, cutting the time frame down even more. And then he, uh, he has time to go on the wrestling trip afterwards. It doesn't really offer an alibi. Over the objections of the prosecution, uh, Johnson testified about how he gave details about the murders to Miss Kelly. Now, Johnson was involved in search and rescue. I told that one of the boys w were beaten and cross-cacerated, and he said, and that they was tied with the shoestrings. If, okay, if Miskelly was told that they were tied with shoestrings, his explanation of duplicity, excuse me, for, for saying they were tied with brown rope and his, his first day of confessions gains credence. It does explain how Miskelly might have might have had some information about the killings that he demonstrates in his confession. Uh, Johnson said he got the information from other members of the search and rescue squad. Under questioning by Davis, Johnson first said he told nobody else but Miskelly about the injuries, then quote, whoever was standing there. He was sure he talked about the injuries on other occasions. Excuse me just a second. I mean, it was in the papers and everything. I mean, okay, so basically you told him what was in the paper? <coughs> Johnson. And what I heard at the search and rescue, because I wasn't at the scene, uh, Brent Davis, and you didn't know which it, which one or if all of the boys had had their genitals removed, right? Johnson says, right. Okay, and you certainly didn't know which one had, correct? Right. You certainly didn't tell Jesse that, did you? No, sir. Okay, so if Jesse knew which one had had that occurred to him, he wouldn't have got that information from you. True? Johnson says, right. Uh, Johnson confirmed the search and rescue meetings were on the first and third Wednesdays of each month. Davis worked to clarify what Johnson had said and not said to Miss Skelly. So the extent of what you would have said would have been something to do with some castration type injuries. Is that correct? 
Johnson says, yes, sir. Anything else you would have told him? No, sir. Okay, didn't mention to him about injuries to the ears, anything like that? No, sir. Didn't mention to him anything about signs or injuries or indications of sexual abuse? No, sir, I can't recall. In his confession, Miskelly gave details about the bodies that would only have been known either to the killers or to law enforcement. And Johnson's testimony did raise some questions about what Miskelly had known on the basis of his uh, of what Johnson he'd heard from Johnson when he went in in and gave a confession. And clearly, his clearly what's being said here is that he didn't have sufficient information from Johnson to have given the details that he gave in his confession. But it, it does raise some questions. Johnny Hamilton, who's another um, guy involved in the wrestling trip, testified about leaving for Dias around 7 or 7.30, picking up his nephew Keith Johnson on the way at an old dirty Exxon building at the intersection of I-55 and Highway 63, returning to Highland, quote, pretty close to 11 o'clock. He testified Miss Skelly was along for the trip. Hamilton said he remembered the day because Kevin Johnson was supposed to show up in Dias after attending a search and rescue meeting, but he didn't because the boys turned up missing. He testified that he was informed about search and rescue's involvement in the search about midnight on May 5th. Now, search and rescue had not been notified of the missing boys at that point. Uh, Hamilton said he had not been contacted about the case until the end of January, but recalled May 5th clearly. Raises the question if Johnny Hamilton figures in some of these other alibi uh, statements too, why he didn't go to the police earlier if he had some good information to help his friend Jesse Miskelly Jr., um, he's giving information uh, about search and rescue. Uh, Kevin uh, Johnson did not miss the trip to Dias because he was searching for these little boys. He missed it, missed, missed the, the trip because uh, it was a regular search and rescue meeting night. Uh, However, it's not that important. He just simply—he's got some things wrong here. Probably not a great witness, um, but probably knows knew more than they went over there. Uh, went over uh, in, in his testimony because Hamilton supposedly had more dealings with nothing illegal, nothing wrong with it, but supposedly had more dealings with. Uh, Miss Kelly that afternoon, and they went over his testimony. Uh, William Bill Cox, Jr., a 26-year-old resident of the small community of Heth, Arkansas, also in Crittenden County, did not testify but gave a handwritten statement to police on June 11th. 
On April 27, 1993, myself and Fred Revelle was at Dias, Arkansas and purchased a wrestling ring from Charles Stone of Dias. We put $300 down and I gave the police the receipt. I don't remember who was with us that night. Now, Bill Cox is the one who supposedly threw Jesse into the ring and damaged his head. <laughs> and there was a lot of head damage going on with Jesse Miskelly anyway. Uh, he wasn't, he, not only was he not any help to uh, the defense, he, he did help the prosecution. Uh, he gave police the receipt that basically disproves the whole wrestling trip uh, alibi. Now, I'm going to sum up all these This goes on quite a bit, but it's a little complicated, but bear with me, and this will wrap it up, and then I'll be through with the Miskelly alibis. This is a sum up. According to his father, Jesse was home at 7.15. According to Miskelly's early statement to Ridge, he got home from work at 5 p.m. and stayed home. Josh Darby initially said Miskelly got home around 2.30 and came over to his house for about 15 minutes around 5.30 p.m. Then he said he saw Miskelly go home around then he said Miskelly got home around 1.30 then he saw Miskelly and Susie at the bus stop around 3.30 and that Miskelly Scusi Brewer uh, Miskelly's girlfriend and that Miskelly visited with him up for about 15 minutes at 5.30 at trial, he said they got home around 1.30 or 2, that he saw Miss Skelly with Susie at Stephanie Dollar's house at 3.30, and that Miss Skelly came over alone over to his house at some unspecified time and stayed for 15 or 20 minutes. And Josh Darby was his co-worker with uh, Jess, uh, Jesse Miss Skelly on the uh, Ricky Dees uh, housing, the uh, roofing work. Ricky Dees said he dropped Miss Skelly off at home about 12.30 or 1.00, on May 5th, returned at 1 or 1.30 and was told by Miss Kelly Sr. that little Jesse had gone to Stephanie Dollar's house. Susie Brewer told police she first saw Miss Kelly at 3.30 p.m. at Stephanie Dollar's house and stayed till 4, then went to Johnny, Johnny Hamilton's trailer until about 5.30, <coughs> then left to witness the commotion surrounding the slapping. She went back to Stephanie's around 7 because Jesse was going to Dias and he dropped in briefly, leaving around 7.10 or 7.20. She watched him walk to Roger Jones's house. She had, she said Miss Skelly had been out of her sight for 15 or 20 minutes while he talked to McNeese. She was standing in the yard while Jesse talked to Lewis Hoggard. She guessed at 6.30. Uh, they'd been out of her sight for 15, 20 minutes. Talked to Jim McNeese, an acquaintance. Lewis Hoggard, another neighborhood acquaintance. Uh, Jesse, Jesse went to get his wrestling match. She last saw him at 7 as she was returning to Stephanie Dollars. And he was walking to see Roger Jones. 
in her testimony, Stephanie Dollar was adamant she had seen Jess, Jesse Miskelly at 6.30 p.m. standing near the police car. She said Miskelly watched her children from about 2.30 to 3.30 to 4 o'clock. She apparently had some sort of meeting at school that day she had to attend concerning her children. She said that Susie and Susie Brewer and Jesse left for Johnny Deadman's house, not Johnny Hamilton, Johnny Deadman's house around 4, that she went to Deadman's and that she called the police around 5 when her child was slapped. She claimed Miskelly overheard the conversation between Connie Molden, who was the slapper, the alleged neighborhood slapper of children. Uh, she'd just been involved in another slapping incident the day before involving uh, Aaron Hutchison, Vic, Vicki Hutchison's son. But anyway, that particular day she was involved in uh, slapping incident involving Cody, who was the son of, the small son of Stephanie Dollar, who was friends with Jesse Miskelly. In fact, Miskelly babysat for her. She overheard, anyway, she claimed she, Miskelly overheard the conversation between Connie Bolden and the police and reported that to her between 5 and 6.30. She last saw Miss Skelly between 6.30 and 7, she said. Jennifer Roberts testified she had been at Johnny Hamilton's house about 4 or 4.30 when Miss Skelly and Susie Brewer walked up. She said Christy Jones Moss and Hamilton were present. She soon left, but later saw Miss Skelly and Christy sitting on his front porch sometime after 4.30, but before 6 p.m. She said Miss Skelly and Roger Jones dropped in at her house about 11 p.m. and stayed for about an hour. <coughs> now, Christy Dawn Jones had given a statement to police on October 1st, 1993, but mentioned, had mentioned nothing about the events of May 5th. And she, when she came to testify in February of 94, she said that she first saw Miss Skelly when he arrived at Johnny Hamilton's house trailer about 4.30. When they left at an unspecified time, Susie went home and went walking while Christy went over to Miss Skelly's and sat with him on his front porch for quite a while, around 5.30 or about 6, until Stephanie Dollar pulled up to talk to Miss Skelly about the slapping incident. Um, Christy said she saw Miss Skelly offering directions to the police. She said small children on bicycles came up to talk to Miss Skelly. She and Miss Skelly went back to Johnny, Johnny Hamilton's where they sat around for a few minutes. And she said Miss Skelly left for dice shortly after 7. Charles Allen Bubba Ashley Jr. told police on June 18th that Miss Skelly stayed a few minutes at the scene of the police call and then we walked back toward the north end of the trailer park. He testified he talked briefly to Miss Skelly about his wrestling plans. Ashley testified he did not remember that Stephanie Dollar showed him a police report. Now, Deputy James McNeese testified, oh, that's not, I'm, James, I'm getting James. James Dollar, it's the 
the officer. James McNeese is not an officer. James McNeese testified that he saw Miss Skelly and Dennis Carter Jr. as he was driving home at about 6.15, talked briefly with them and was told they were going to wrestling. McNeese saw Jesse again at 6.30 talking to the deputy. Lewis Hoggard testified he saw Miss Skelly in front of his house and at Stephanie's Dollars around 6 or 6.30. He said Miss Skelly talked to police when the car pulled into Dollar's yard. When Miss Skelly started walking home, Hoggard asked him what was going on. Deputy Dollahite testified that he did not go to the Dollar House. In an earlier statement, Hoggard pegged the encounter at about 5.30 p.m. On June 9th, Dennis Ray Carter made no mention of in other words, the week after the arrest, Dennis Carter made no mention of interaction with Miss Kelly on May 5th. In a handwritten statement on June 22nd, he said he had never been to Dias with Miss Kelly and made no mention of May 5th. On February 1st, Carter testified he and Miss Kelly walked down the road a mile or two right after school on May 5th and had a conversation with McNeese about wrestling. And right after school would have been around 3.30, so 4 o'clock or so. Roger Jones testified he saw Miss Kelly about 5.30 across from the Miss Kelly home and at 7 at the trailer where Jones was living. They sat and talked and then left for Johnny Hamilton's. He, Miss Kelly, Freddie Ravel, Keith, Johnson, Bill Cox, Dennis Carter, Zella, and Johnny Hamilton left for Dias around 7.15, 7.30. He and Miss Kelly rode in Keith Johnson's car while the rest rode in Hamilton's car and B Bill Cox had left his car. They returned at 11.15 to Rogers' house where they sat and talked with his cousin until midnight when Miss Kelly left. So concerning Miss Kelly's activities from roughly 4 to 7.30, did he hang around with Susie Brewer from 4 to 7.30 or so, except for his brief talk with McNeese? Was he helping Stephanie Dollar sort out matters with police? Was he sitting out on his front porch with Christy Jones? Did he talk with Bubba Ashley and Lewis Hoggard? Was he walking around with Dennis Carter Jr.? While some claims and statements coincided, no cohesive narrative emerged. The parade of overreaching witnesses wearing yellow ribbons apparently was met with appropriate skepticism by jurors. Most crucially, no police officer remembered Miss Skelly from that afternoon. All three were familiar with him. Vicki Hutchinson had said she bought whiskey for Carter and Miss Skelly that evening. Now she said that after the trial. Just to be clear what the time frame is on that. She she told police that when Miss Skelly made his his uh, confession to prosecutors over the objections of his defense attorneys, describing breaking this Evan Williams bottle on this overpass. Uh, he said Vicki Hutchison bought the whiskey for him. They called her. She At first, she remembered buying the whiskey, couldn't remember the brand. Then it came to her. It was Evan Williams whiskey. They find the whiskey, find a shard there. They take it to the liquor store. The shard matches up. 
Some people don't find this very convincing that uh, this bottle of whiskey was broken at the exact spot where Miss Kelly said it was. And that's their right to not be convinced, but frankly, they wouldn't be convinced if we had videotape of the killings. Uh, well, it seems strange that a drunken Jesse would have gone wrestling shortly after the murders. It was a possible, even likely, scenario. The trip offered no alibi for when the boys were attacked. Uh, Miss Skelly's Bible confession did incorporate the Dias trip and some statements from his defenders in a timeline that had him at Robin Hood Hills involved in the killing that evening. Uh, defense testimony on the Dias excursion did not pan out. Fred Ravel remembered picking up Miskelly at Highland Trailer Park around 7 p.m. He also remembered Miskelly injuring his head. He remembered dropping Miskelly off at 11 or 11.30. That would have been pretty good. One of the better witnesses except for the fact that his testimony was cast into doubt by claims of a payment to Charles Stones that evening. And the payment was demonstrated to have occurred a week earlier, which cast doubt on all of Fred Ravel's uh, testimony and honestly cast doubt on anybody else who was testifying about the wrestling trip, some of whom wouldn't have been that much help anyway. The testimonies of Roger Jones and Fred Ravel not only offered no clear alibi, they threw any description of the trip to Dias on May 5th into question because they relied on this, this receipt. Keith Johnson was unsure of when he made the trip to Dias, but remembered Miskelly rode with him and hit his head against the ring. The bottom line is... Jesse Miskelly Jr. had lots and lots of alibis, but no alibis for the evening of May 5th as far as the jury was concerned. And that's it for Miskelly's alibis. Thanks for listening. Um, stay safe, stay well. I'm still staying home, but if you choose not to, it, it's okay with me. Just don't be coughing on me. This material comes from my book, Where the Monsters Go. I have another book. It's part of a two-volume set. It's a second volume. The first volume is Blood on Black. It's an extensive, really exhaustive look at the evidence against the West Memphis Three. Uh, I condensed the two books into uh, a revised version. Streamlined it, really. It's somewhat more readable. Uh, and it's a little less expensive, and the book is called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. They're available on Amazon in print and in Kindle formats. Thank you very much.